Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today on the show, we're joined by Graham Cowan, who is a resilience expert. He's on the board of Are You OK? and runs his own business, helping teams and leaders become more resilient. On the episode, we talk about recovering from burnout, what it means to stay in the healthy zone, and the importance of self-care at work. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you follow, share with a friend, and we'd love if you can leave us a five-star rating and review. Graham, thank you so much for joining Em and I on the show today. It's great to have you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Em and I have wanted to do an episode where we're talking about the issue of burnout, stress and resilience at work. And this has been on our hit list, Em, since I think the beginning when we first started. Yeah, it's a bit of a passion episode for me personally. So I'm really excited for what the next 30 or 40 minutes might bring. And to have you with us, Graham, um, is a real bonus. Excellent. So, Let's dive in, Graham, and I'm really keen to know a bit about your story and why this issue of resilience is something that's that I guess you're really passionate about. Yeah, well, it goes back a long way, I guess, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll give a very abridged version. Um, I first had my first episode of depression, I think it was in my second year of uni, and it's a long time ago, I didn't know what it was, and um I did eventually get over it myself uh, without too much help, but it was probably affected me for about six months or so. And then I had a whole series. I, I you know, my career was joining Johnson and Johnson. I worked in a sales role with them. Then I went to a division of Pfizer and became a, a marketing manager there. Uh, then returned to Johnson and Johnson on the consumer side, and and then I dovetailed into the whole area of career. So I was a recruiter, I was a outplacement consultant, a culture change consultant for about that period of time. And then I worked in executive search, you know, placing people into senior roles. And it always really fascinated me how work could be so good for us, but it could be so bad if it wasn't rewarding, if it wasn't really meaningful to you. And I guess it was 2000, I went through this, I was a vice president for Carney, which is a, um, a global consulting company. And there was a, a big uh, tech crash and I crashed. And I was basically, in a, in a very short period of time, I lost my job, my marriage broke down, and I had to go back and live with my, my parents. And I, I literally didn't work for uh, five years. And part of my pathway out was thinking about how can I use this experience to help other people? And so I decided to do my first book, which was Back from the Brink, where I interviewed um, some well-known and everyday Australians who'd been through a really tough time and what helped them come out of it. 
And that just sort of then led to people, mainly in country areas actually, asking me to speak. I had some well-known people there, so there's lots of publicity. I did about, about 150 um, media interviews over about a three-week period. And so I got lots of inquiries from country areas who often don't have much in the way of those services. And so then I went back, um, you know, talking about those experiences, talking about how I got out of it, how other people got out of it, and also advising those that were supporting those around them. And along the way, I started to go back to my roots, which was in corporate Australia and talking about, you know, mental health and resilience there. And this is maybe 10 years ago, and everyone was saying, you know, we don't have any problems. No, it's all fine. Uh, the good thing is, I guess, the last five years, there's been real recognition on the importance of uh, well-being in terms of productivity and many, many other things. And uh, so I've really evolved my work. I, I talk about how to build personal resilience, how to build team resilience, and um, and also how to help someone who's really struggling. And uh, along the way through my books, I met Gavin Larkin, the founder of Are You OK? back in 2009 and um, just loved the idea that he had about starting Are You OK? Day and I helped him to launch it in Parliament House in Sydney and it's just been magnificent to see how that's grown and reached an impact. Like we had no money, no employees, <laughs> just a real uh, driving mission and vision and it was a great experience on how important a sense of purpose can be, you know, that we were, we were able to get people on board who just wanted to be aligned with the purpose of, you know, a conversation can change a life. And then I've also, I've, I've taken thousands of um, leaders and their teams about uh, through, you know, keynotes and workshops about how to have both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. And I really believe that that's the real sustainable success. And, um, yes, that's a, a quick overview. <laughs> I personally, um, through my career, would put my hand up and perhaps self-diagnose to say that I feel like I've gone through burnout uh, twice. And the first time around, I, I think I'd probably heard of it, but I certainly, when I was in the midst of it, didn't know that that was what was happening. It was actually when I felt like I was coming out of it that with some hindsight I could see in the rear vision mirror, oh, that thing people talk about, I think that might have been what just happened to me. And the second time around I really tried hard with a little bit of wisdom to put the brakes on it and not let it happen again, but it got away from me. And I guess I don't. I certainly don't want to label your experiences, Graham, um, but I would be curious to know if you would classify perhaps even, you know, your experience around 2000 as an episode of burnout. Um, but regardless of whether you do or not, I guess understanding more about your perspective on this idea of burnout and in particular because from what I do understand, and I'm no expert, but it's something that is now recognised as a diagnosable condition. But that's only come about in the last couple of years and yet you hear so many stories from so many people whose careers are, are long and this is something that has been affecting people for decades. Yeah, it has. And, you know, as you noted, the World Health Organization nominated it as an illness, um, you know, that affects, potentially affects people. There's lots and lots of overlap, I think, between depression and, and burnout. You know, you have a lack of energy, um, you can't switch off, you feel anxious, um, 
so there's lots and lots of overlap and to be honest I, i'm not really an expert to pick between the difference but uh, i think the big thing is is that it just really affects your productivity it affects your love of life it affects your relationships and the key thing is is to be able to catch it early and that was great to hear in that you were you did catch it early the second time funny enough in my uh, third book back from the brink I interviewed a guy called Bob Borstein who was the director of public affairs for Google in Washington and one of the things he said which I thought was fantastic is that you need to be your own therapist and what he means by that is that you are able to identify your early warning signs and know what they could be for me it's often sleep um, disruption you know waking up at you know 4am not being able to get back to sleep again and uh, i know that if that starts to happen i really need to pull back and you know cut back to just the must do commitments and really get back into the practicing the self care as well so catching it early is always the best thing to do and uh, it will turn around faster uh, the quicker you take action what would be some of the other signals to look out for if someone's I guess you mentioned sleep disruption. What are the other things that you think people should be aware of? Well, it's, you know, more negative thinking, black and white thinking, un unable to be creative and that sort of thing, you know, not seeing many options. It's also feeling very pessimistic about the future. It's, it's also, you know, you come to doubt yourself and don't believe in yourself and there's shame in not being able to shake yourself out of it. Uh, there can be changes in, you know, libido and in um, some people eat much more or eat much less, uh, you know, it, and I guess you can really summarise, it's, it's real changes that are detrimental. Um, decreased energy, you know, withdrawing as well can be part of it. Uh, for everyone it's different, but there's some other things that are, are quite common. And, I mean, I love one of the things that you um, on on your podcast as well, the caring CEO. If you jump on and have a listen, um, there's some great uh, there's some great ways that you frame it, and you talk about that idea of uh, creating a caring environment as well as high performing teams. And I guess my question for you, Graham, is how much is the culture of the workplace an influencing factor? about burnout or is it or or even just our feeling of stress at work or is it more about us as a person because the care side of it with our employer has a huge part to play in it yeah the culture is everything uh, well no that's not right it's not everything but it's a it's a huge part because if you're in a toxic environment um, if you're in a place where you don't feel safe if you're in a place where you think others are out to get you it's just really really destructive and one of the things that i like to do in the webinars i do is ask people to think of a great team they've been in you know the best team it could have been you know you know netball team or your footy team or when you worked at mcdonald's or this job or previous job what was it that made it different and I give people about uh seven different options you know there's things like you know a compelling vision uh, complementary strengths, um, we had each other's back, we enjoyed ourselves, blah, blah, blah. And always the number one thing, and every single time is we had each other's back. <laughs> so when we have each other's back, we know we belong. You know, we know that we're part of something. And uh, we have a basic human requirement to feel that we belong. And then 
the second and third is always between we feel safe and we enjoyed ourselves. You know, it can vary from place to place, but they're the top three. With with and so that's how the best teams are um, are produced. So if you don't feel that in your team, it's not going to be optimal. <laughs> yeah, and even just the uh, one of the things that I see is it seems to be this swing from one side to the other. So you you might find a manager who's super caring, really high empathy, but they might not challenge their team members to grow and perform, and that can be a bit demotivating in some ways if you if you want to grow and you have ambition. Or then you have the other end of the spectrum where the manager or the employer. Um, or the culture of the business is perform at all costs. We don't care who we kind of steamroll over to get results. How do you find, I guess, the balance between those two things? And and as an individual, how do you um, kind of self-assess? Yeah, I, th- I think that's why I started this podcast because I, you can talk about theory, but I wanted to show people that are doing this and making it work, making it happen. And, you know, I interview people like Mike Schneider, the CEO of Bunnings. You know, he's got 60,000 people and yet he really champions both. He really does. And for his personal style of leadership, he talks about the four H's and that stands for honest, humble, helpful and happy. And that's his guiding light each day. So at the end of each day, he goes through and reviews how that's going. But he also, you know, has very ambitious plans as well. And he's also humble enough to say that he can't do it all himself. He says he has three coaches. He has a business coach, he has a running coach, and he has a mindset coach who's, you know, mindset psychologist. And uh, I think when you hear when people in those roles admit that they need help as well, it makes it all right for the rest of us to to make a difference. And likewise, there's many others. I interviewed um, Susie Nicoletti, who's the Australian Managing Director of Twitter. You know, she spends a huge amount on keeping a finger on the pulse around that culture. And and the culture is both those things. It's the fundamental care, but also real high performance. And she even has, there are lots of little pulse surveys, but she even has like this, what she calls her, her culture squad and these are people that are trusted in the organization who you know move around and so she has meeting with them once a month to just re, you know to hear about what what's happening what's going well what are people's concerns and uh, you know this is so many examples when i when i one of the really highlights of my career was working on a, a culture change process with ramsey healthcare and i also interviewed um, pat breer on there and Pat is just the most humble guy, but in the time that he managed or led um, Ramsey, that went from 12 hospitals to 150 hospitals, all you know, all over Europe, all over the place. And their tagline was people caring for people. That's That was their tagline. They had the Ramsey way, which talked about how they work. And that was all about, you know, collaborating together, always challenging the status quo, looking for ways to improve things. But but the underpinning everything was people caring for people. We care for you, our, our colleagues, our patients, the families who visit the patients, and we also care for our shareholders as well. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, there's just so many examples about if you get the culture right, everything else takes care of itself. Are there particular things in your travels, Graham, that you're seeing in regards to, I guess, really practical initiatives? I mean, I love this idea of the culture squad. 
that you talked about. Are there other things organisations are doing that are, are quite tangible that seem to be working really well in regards to helping their employees build resilience, manage stress and stay away from that burnout zone? Yeah, there's there's a, a wide range of things that people are doing and it's been really challenging, you know, in this whole pandemic. There's just been, by definition, lots of isolation and that's been very, very difficult. And I've seen, you know, companies, some companies really reach out to try and promote connection and, and to show that, you know, we're still trying to get stuff done but we need to be connected to keep performing. And so they have things like, you know, breaking into groups. They'll have a, you know, a trivial pursuit group. They'll have a podcast group to discuss podcasts. They'll have a Netflix group to discuss Netflix or, or and a photography group. And so that enables people from all over the com- country, company to sort of end up in a place where you might not even know the person, but, you know, you've got a sort of common interest. And I think that's a, been a really great move. Um, just recently I interviewed Mike um, Schneider. He's the... Australian Managing Director of Microsoft. And one of the things they did, which I think is brilliant, but I'd, I'd never heard of before, they invited all their employees, they got about 2,000, to share their postcode. And uh, and so everyone found out someone who was in their 5Ks, and if they wanted to, they could reach out to that person and have a work, a walk. And often they didn't know them, but it was just fantastic, and just in terms of across, across the organisation. And you may be aware there's a... Um, a group called Great Place to Great Place to Work, and it assesses um, workplace culture through the eyes of their employees. And the astonishing thing about Microsoft is that ninety three percent of their employees rated a nice, a great place to work. Just extraordinary. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money. My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The word uncertainty is something that has come up in all of our lives often over this last 18 months or so. And it's nice to hear you talk, Graham, about these, um, I guess, initiatives that have come out of the new experiences that we've all been having and how do we actually translate culture through the fact that we're, we're more isolated and physically more disconnected. Can you just talk to us and our listeners about the role just generally that you feel uncertainty can play in, 
I guess, someone's experience at work or what sort of impact that can have on them? Yeah, also in my webinars, I've been asking that pretty regularly about what's been people's major challenge, you know, whether it's constant change or isolation from family and friends or fear of catching the virus. And number one always is uncertainty. That's their number one challenge every single time. And humans, we're not very good with uncertainty. You know, there's a, a very clinical studies that show that we get more stressed knowing we could get an electric shock sometime today as against we will definitely get a shock sometime today. So we yeah. could. <laughs> so it tells you something, like it really does. So I think the really important thing to keep in mind about uncertainty is there's so much outside our control. And I talk about this concept of a moodometer. You know, we have a green zone, amber zone, red zone. And there are three things that influence where we are in that moodometer. One is the, our genetics, and that actually has a big impact. It contributes 50% of, of our mood or what psychologists call positive effect. The next one is uh, events that happen to us. So that's only 10%. Um, Sonia Lyubomirsky, the per person who reviewed those studies, said that it's more like everyday events, and I would certainly argue that COVID's been far from that. But the next one is our intentional actions. 40% is our intentional actions. So that's what we choose to do each day. And uh, so I think a real key to focusing or dealing with uncertainty is focusing on what you can control and having plans in place to address that, having plans in place to fuel your glasses of well-being and resilience. So I talk about three key elements of well-being and resilience. The first is vitality. And that's our physical health, exercise, rest well, eat well. Next one is intimacy, which is our emotional health, you know, having supportive people in our home life and our work life. The third element is prosperity. This is our contribution, health and well-being. And uh, this is, some people get this from our work, some people get it from, you know, volunteering for a church or a charity or, a, you know, uh, a school or whatever. And we need all three of those elements to really have sustained well-being. And I talk about, you know, having three glasses and vitality, intimacy, prosperity, and the acronym is VIP. So, and my advice is we need to act like a VIP. And each day that's thinking about what am I going to do to top up my vitality glass of well-being, my intimacy glass and my um, prosperity glass of well-being. In fact, I'll, I'll show you this now. This is... You know, I do this every every week. I work out, you know, what I'm doing. I do this on Sunday. I write down what I've planned for my physical health, my emotional health, and what are the important things I want to get done in work each week. And it's just a way of having a bit of a, a plan that you're doing the right things and you've also got things to look forward to. And so, yeah, I think that is the best way to deal with uncertainty is just really have a plan for the things you can control. I love that, Graham, of the um, being able to call out those glasses, so vitality, intimacy and prosperity. One of the things, and Em and I, yeah, we're both sharing vulnerably of, of having both gone through an experience of uh, burnout in our career. And for me personally, it was, I would, it was in 2018 and I kind of hit, it was like hitting a wall and I often hear people describe it as that and you hit the wall. One day, finished work, left and went, I, I can't, I don't know that I have the energy to go back. Mm. And I had 12 weeks off, took 12 weeks off. My work was amazing, like absolutely incredible. 
Uh, and through that time, Graham, I remember um, thinking, where did, where did I miss, at what point did I not observe what was happening? And I think what you're saying about those three glasses of, of vitality, intimacy and prosperity, how, how can you monitor because you're saying top it up, but what? how do you monitor when it's going down? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> I have a, I have something called the self-care snapshot, and it has five questions in, under each of those three categories. And so it gives you an idea on what are your mood vampires? What are the things you're neglecting doing in the busyness of life? And people can access that for free at my website, grahamcowan.com.au, forward slash self-care and you can download the uh, the snapshot there and then it's just really you know resolving to do something about it um taking action because uh you know just doing something little, little things can really make a big difference it's perhaps why often the advice is even on those days when you don't feel like it if going for a run is part of your routine the best thing you can do is go for a run mm. but personally the trick i find is to take that mental and emotional pressure off myself for it to be the best run I've ever done. It doesn't need to be the best run I've ever done, but it definitely needs to happen. And I've I've learned that from experience, but it is so difficult when you're feeling, oh, I just don't know if I've got the energy today. I really kind of just want to roll out of bed and lay on the lounge. The last thing I want to do is move my butt. And yet I've also got this other little voice that I can hopefully bring you know, louder and louder to the surface. And most days I do, and that is, but it's the best thing you can go and do. So, And I think also in those situations, you have to apply some self-compassion as well um, and not whip yourself up because you're not doing it. And, and to also remember that if I don't feel like a run today, well, I can walk. Yes. <laughs> can walk. And, and just walking for 45 minutes has, you know, Mayo Clinic research tells us that a mood is better up to 12 hours later after a, you know, 30 to 40 minute brisk walk. And that's not as intense, you know, it just gives you a chance to notice more things around you. But it, it, but it is really important to cut yourself some slack as well and not, because it's no good to keep on whipping yourself. <laughs> oh, the guilt trap. I, yeah, I, I pedal hard mentally every day to not let that become a bigger part of my personality. And I don't think I'm alone. I was just going to say this, um, a very good TED Talk and book about that. It's uh, called Self-Compassion by Dr. Kristen Neffs, N-E-F-F-S. And she's had some extraordinary work on self-compassion, just showing that it has all the upside of self-esteem and none of the downside. You know, if you have high self-esteem, you can be a real narcissist. You, know, you can be a pain to be around. But self-compassion has all the upside but none of the downside. Can I'm putting this out to the group. <laughs> What, what, why is it so hard to be compassionate towards ourselves? Yeah, you know, we say things to ourselves we never say to anyone else. <laughs> I know, it's like you wouldn't talk about your friends like that. <laughs> for me, and everyone's different, but for me, a big breakthrough is really meditation. And uh, that's, that's my keystone habit. I do that first thing when I wake up every morning, seven days a week. And part of that is sometimes listening to a bit that's guided about mindfulness and a bit that's guided about, um, you know, just letting go of uh, everything. But I, but I really find that that really does help me to foster more self-compassion. And the funny thing is when you're more self-compassionate, you're more compassionate to people, other people. 
So it's it, it's a it's a win win. It really is because if we're you know hyped up and stressed, we we can't do much to other people because we can't we haven't got the uh, reserves to do it. And you often need reserves to make a difference there. That word reserves to me is a bit of a um, as I've journeyed through. Uh, and, and feel like I'm a little bit wiser about myself and, and where, you know, my, some of those little warning signs. It, it's so important to actually assess and, and self-assess how are my own reserves, how are my energy levels going, and it's not selfish to care for yourself, but for some reason it feels difficult or it requires discipline. And I think about the discipline, Graham, for you to do seven days a week, first thing in the morning, meditate. Ha, ha, has that just been a process for you of learning this is essential for me or, or what does that discipline look like? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've really been meditating a lot since I, you know, came back from that real breakdown. But, but I would sort of fluctuate a bit, sometimes on, sometimes off. I, I, you know, I think I've got something else in the morning, so I'll do it after that, then I'd forget. And I know, and I've learned this, that if I do let it go, it doesn't matter a day here, day there, probably even a week, but it does really make a difference to my well-being and my thinking patterns and that sort of thing. And how I came to decide to do it each day was actually listening to a podcast. I interviewed, I listened to um, Hugh Jackman being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. And... You know, and his, uh, Hugh Jackman's a very, very regular meditator. And, um, you know, and Tim asked him why he didn't. He said, oh, I just do it first thing every day. Without that, that's, that's my number one thing. And so I thought, oh, well, if Hugh Jackman can do it, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and seriously, it wor- It has worked. It really has. It's just, it's, it's, so, it's almost like a reflex now. I hardly have to think about it. Of course, it's not that way to start, but just finding ways that you can put those um, elements of well-being in your day and your week is uh, is very critical. And I'd suggest as well, it's not unusual to work, to have to experiment or to, to take time to experiment with a few different strategies before you find the ones that are going to fill up your reserves and re-energise you because everyone is so different. Mm-hmm. So what works for one may not work in the same way for another. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I've started to think as we've been speaking, it's been really nice to focus on that, I guess, introspection and, and what we see of ourselves and whether or not we can recognise those warning signs and what we do about that. What advice would you have, Graham, for anyone who maybe is observing in someone else that perhaps they're starting to track downwards? Hmm. Often it is those around them, loved ones who observe it first. You know, when you're in your little wheel running, 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 you don't notice it, but people can. And, you know, it really is what Are You OK is about. It's it's observing changes in people. So people could be moodier. They could be isolating more. Um, they could uh, change behaviour, you know, turn up late for work, be unkempt, you know, and, or have change in circumstances. You know, might have lost their job or a relationship breakdown. So that really is the is the trigger. And, and it is really just about reaching out to that person and just um, observing what you've seen is different. And it's often best doing it on a walk if it's COVID possible, you know, just walking shoulder to shoulder and just say, look, I've noticed that, um, you know, you haven't been turning up to Friday trip night drinks. You know, you always used to be there. Is you okay? Everything okay? And uh, and then just really letting that silence land there and, and um, 
And then asking open-ended questions, you know, just really try to get them talking as much as possible because the more they talk, the greater our capacity to influence them. And then our aim is to hopefully influence them to do just one thing. You know, it could be to see their GP or if they've got financial stresses, call a financial helpline or, or the bank or whatever, just take one, one little action. There's an overlay on that as well, is that it's quite often, particularly in men, when you ask them, are you okay? They say, yeah, fine, no worries. And you know they're not. <laughs> and so I talk about really three strategies or potential strategies there. One is to, you know, if there's, if there's someone that knows that person better or has a greater degree of trust with that person, just um, approaching them and saying, look, I'm really worried about, um, you know, Shelley for this reason, blah, 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 blah. You know, would you mind reaching out? So that can be also very, very good as well. Something else that uh, we should never forget is don't be afraid to revisit, um, you know, the RUAK okay conversation because someone might not be ready to talk right now, but they could be um, at another time in the future. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're I think, um, you know, important things you can do when someone is in denial. So much of that is, uh, well, all of that is so valuable, but in particular, I'd love to just call out the mention of silence because I find in a conversation it is uncomfortable even if you're the person that's asking the question to let the silence sit there. But if you can just overcome that discomfort for a moment, let the silence linger, and particularly, Graeme, you're right, if you're on a walk, you're doing an activity, it's so much easier to let the silence linger than if you're sitting across from somebody in a more um, one-on-one or formal setting over dinner or coffee. Oh, sorry, I, I was just also going to add um, our theme this year, and I forgot to mention this, was are you really okay? And that can be really powerful as well, where someone, you know, is uh, says, no, I'm fine, and you let silence sit, silence sit, silence sit, and, and just say, are you really okay? Just quietly and gently, and that can often lead to real breakthroughs if you just sort of sit again, are prepared to sit in the silence. And even the the strategy of a walk, I love that because it's a, a lot less threatening. Mm. Sometimes sitting eye to eye with someone where they're going through something extremely difficult, where there's the, a level of vulnerability required to come back and say, no, Graham, I'm not okay, where, where you've got a level of um, rawness there that when you're walking and you're not necessarily having that eye contact, there's a totally different dynamic at play in the conversation that allows for, I think, some breathing space and some room to maybe um, reduce the, I guess, I would say temperature. It's not that, but it's 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 reducing some of the barriers. Mm. Mm. It really is. And, you know, parents will often tell you that they'll get the best conversations from their kids when they're in the car. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was thinking this is why my mother would wait till I was trapped in the car before she'd ask me about something I don't want to talk about as a teenager. <laughs> Many parents have now. that secret. <laughs> I love that idea of are you really okay because one of the things I've noticed is a, another, I know we're talking lots of warning signals of um, I know Sometimes in conversations I go, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And if I start to say it multiple times, <laughs> I know this is bad. I'm not fine, I'm not okay. But I, I, I love coming back and sometimes it's, it's not just expecting that someone can answer that question straight away. Mm. 
like, but allowing the space. Well, potentially that person is still processing what they're feeling for themselves as well. And so finding words for those feelings, that can be quite confronting, yeah. speaking from experience. <laughs> and and often some people, and particularly younger people, I mean, like, you know, kids, early teens, they may not even have the vocabulary or, or be able to think about it. And so to be able to give multiple choice, you know, are you feeling sad or angry or frustrated, you know, that can help them to voice it. And and also potentially with with um, adults, if they're, you know, not able to find the words to keep the conversation going. Graham, I know that part of your story and your passion for building resilience is to do with you, you not wanting people to have to go through an experience like what you you yourself have travelled through and you communicate in your book, Back from the Brink. And I just, what would be some key or one piece of advice or maybe a couple of pieces of advice for our listeners to, if you wish someone had told you earlier in your career? Yeah. Well, the thing I think that would have made the biggest difference was, you know, more of that concept of self-compassion. You know, I think um, pre-breakdown, I was very hard on myself, very, very driven, and um, and yeah, you know, I, I had a, had had the wrong priorities, and and part of going through a real crisis and breakdown, and the potential upside is, you know, you you reevaluate what's important. You have a clear sense of purpose eventually, and. Um, yeah, so, but, but it all starts with that self-compassion. And and also I think a big element for me was when you are depressed, you're very me-focused, me, everything, me, me, me. And part of writing that first book was, you know, converting the, the me to the we and thinking what can what can my experience and also what I'm going to share from lots of other people, how can that help other people? And I think that's a really um, key element as well, having that sense of purpose. So, yeah, they're, they're probably, you know, the self-compassion is big. The purpose doesn't come straight away, but it does come eventually. And, and that's a, a very, very important element for our well-being as well. Perhaps on the self-compassion front, we need to start asking ourselves, if our friend was in this situation right now, what would we say to them? Exactly. <laughs> very good advice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you might go about answering this, Graham, but... Do you feel like there are particular, um, call it personalities or types of people who perhaps are more likely to be at risk of burnout or are there things that I guess you recognise as, um, you know, maybe contributing more highly? Yeah, there's definite personality traits like perfectionists, mm-hmm. huge um, predictor of burnout. So, you know, just learning how to, let go of perfection and have a mindset that progress is better than perfection. I think yeah. it's, uh, it's a really key element. Um, there are some people that naturally have quite a, an addict, addictive behaviour and sometimes that can be for running or you know, alcohol, drugs, and, and sometimes it can be for, um, you know, just work, you know, working long hours, only feel like you're 
something if you're working so that they are all, all really big predictors. One thing which we haven't touched on, which I think is really important, I know you've got a lot of people in their 20s wanting to really look at what's important for my career, and that is strengths, getting to understand what your top five strengths are. And at the Gallup Strength Centre, you pay about $20, $25 Australian, and you ask answer a 30-minute um, questionnaire which identifies what your top five are out of a possible 34 and people that use their top five strengths every day are shown to be 600% more likely to be engaged in their work and 300% more likely to report high life satisfaction so it's a really really key element and with both um uh you know my kids you know they're very 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 different but you know helping them to to understand their strengths is really important and to actually use them and apply them and they're really handy for anyone and if you're in you know this stage of your careers 20s or 30s the world's changing so fast there are so many different options coming up but if you have your five strengths in front of you and you see two options you say well okay Will I use this top five strengths in option A? Will I use the top five in, in option B sort of thing? And it can help to, can provide a very, very helpful um, funnel to put things through to make the best decision for you and your career. That's such great advice, Graham. And I'm really nosy as a person and curious because I love the Gallant Strengths Finders. What, can I ask what your top five are? Yeah, um, number one is connection. And, uh, you know, I know I always have been good at connecting people, connecting ideas. I was a headhunter, so I had to, had to do that sort of thing. And I, and I often can connect something from one industry across the other where it hasn't been thought of. So, yeah, that's, that's my number one developer. So I'm really um, motivated to help others and see others de de develop positivity. <laughs> Although I certainly wasn't positive when I was depressed for five years, but, uh, you know, and, uh, and then what's the, a learner is another one. And I, I do really love to learn. I just can't think of what my fifth one is right now, but. Uh, 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 sorry, I've put, I've put you on the spot there. <laughs> I'm thinking I've done the strengths finder too, and I would be lucky to remember it Two of them off the top of my really? head. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember mine. I've done it twice and they do change over time. So it's definitely worthwhile doing. But I love that of looking at them on paper and then going, even just assessing your own job. Like if you're feeling a little bit um, low energy, low motivation, or maybe you've got some of those red zone kind of warning signals, looking at your job situation and assessing them against those strengths is such a great way to kind of diagnose where are you at right now? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, Graeme, you've almost opened up a whole other episode because if <laughs> I'm, I'm going to add one more thing. Um, I often, I've become quite clear on what my strengths are through uh, Strengths Finder and a couple of other psych assessments that I've done in my time. And one of the concepts I really love, which is a Hogan concept, is this idea of your overplayed strengths. And mm -hmm. so what I've learned to recognise over time is my strengths, like all of ours, are wonderful when I keep them in check. Exactly. But when they start to become overplayed, that's the danger zone for me. So as an example, um, you could label me as a perfectionist. Uh, you could also label me as having high responsibility. That's one of my uh, Gallup Strengths Finder top five. And so this idea of, you know, this determination and this real conscientiousness and um, my willingness to make sure that if I commit to something, it gets done and it gets done well. What employer wouldn't love that, right? <laughs> but 
when that starts to get the better of me, interestingly, one of my warning signs is I get very focused and don't switch off mm. and I just cannot walk away. And when I know that that's happening, even though there's, you know, also perhaps uh, an argument to say I'm not actually my most productive at the time, that's a warning for me. So I, I think strengths are wonderful because you can understand how to play to them and, and ideally not let them get the better of you. Yeah, and uh, Gallup do have that with their assessment as well. They say there's the balcony. Ah, the thing, and the basement. And the basement. Yeah, you're right. And, and so it addresses the same thing, that in the shadow of your strengths, like weaknesses, like my wife, wow. her number one strength is achiever. And um, and uh, and then the, the, the basement of that is just overstretched, overcommitted. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> yep, I, yeah, yeah, exhausted because achievers, I, I, uh, on, on my team there was an achiever, that was her number one strength as well. And, and she had this disposition to, she would work so hard all the time and be like, okay, now's the time to stop. Yeah, you die for a deadline if you're in <laughs> that realm. <laughs> That's right. Oh, this is, I feel like you're right, Em. We're nearly, we're like, oh, now we've got another whole episode here. So this is, I think, such a great point for us to kind of wrap this conversation up of if you haven't done your strengths fund, go and do it. But also I really want to encourage our listeners right now, if you jump on to Graham's website, because there are some free resources that would really help in understanding the importance of resilience and also Graham I'm just keen for if you can let us know how can people connect with you uh best way is through LinkedIn uh that's the platform I'm most active on uh we've just launched a uh the caring CEO podcast we've got an Instagram uh, uh handle for that which is uh which is great but LinkedIn is the thing I'm most uh, most active on and we'll make sure that there's been so many wonderful resources and, and different things mentioned through this episode. So we'll make sure they're all in the show notes. So really easy for everybody to find. Awesome. All right. Lovely to join you, Em and Shelley. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much, Graham. We've been, as we said, waiting for this episode for a very long time. So I'm excited to listen back once it, it's live. And it's just been wonderful. Thanks so much. Pleasure. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 